Isaiah chapter 29. The great prophet Isaiah wrote in, uh, around the uh, year 740 BC and uh, his prophecy has sometimes been called the fifth gospel because it contains so much uh, really revelation about the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 17 says, Is it not yet a very little while till Lebanon shall be turned into a fruitful field and the fruitful field be esteemed as a forest? In that day, the deaf shall hear the words of the book and the eyes of the blind shall see out of obscurity and out of darkness. The humble also shall increase their joy in the Lord. And the poor among men shall rejoice in the Holy One of Israel. For the terrible one is brought to nothing. The scornful one is consumed. And all who watch for iniquity are cut off. Who make a man an offender by a word. And lay a snare for him who reproves in the gate. And turn aside the just by empty words. Therefore, thus says the Lord who redeemed Abraham concerning the house of Jacob. Jacob shall not now be ashamed, nor shall his face now grow pale. But when he sees his children, the work of my hands in his midst, they will hallow my name and hallow the Holy One of Jacob and fear the God of Israel. These also who erred in spirit will come to understanding And those who complained will learn doctrine. Please keep your Bible open there. In 1962, the American government became very concerned over the rise of Fidel Castro uh, to political power in Cuba. And a top secret organization called Mongoose was launched to try and get rid of him. And it sounds like something out of a James Bond film, uh, but it really was true. They tried all the things that we think of today as gimmicks, but only then they were novel ideas. They tried uh, poisoning the inside of his wetsuit with a fungus that would cause him to instantly die. They tried giving him exploding cigars, uh, snakes in the bed. They tried even lacing the the paper of his speeches with LSD in the hope that he would become uh, hysterical and illuminated and therefore lose credibility uh, with the people when he tried giving his speeches. They even tried hiring the mafia to take him down, uh, none of which actually worked. But one of the more bizarre and strange uh, methods of the of the uh, uh, of the CIA to get rid of him was the idea of getting pro-American pastors in Cuba to preach that the Lord Jesus Christ was coming back next week, and then they were going to fire some extraordinary fireworks called star shells over the country from a submarine in the hope that this would cause the population to believe that the Lord Jesus was coming back, create mass hysteria, cause uh, Castro to resign or worse, and uh, uh, if nothing else, to create a pandemonium which they could then take control over. Well, as far as I know, the plan never went ahead and Castro stayed in power longer than the CIA ever would have liked. But my point in telling that story this evening is this. 
When I'm talking tonight about the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, I want you to know this sermon isn't like one of those sermons. Okay, this isn't a gimmicky sermon to try and set dates. Date setters are upsetters. Uh, We're not into headline hysteria, but it is an announcement of the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in accordance with scripture. You see, the hope of the church in every generation has been for the Lord's return. Ever since the Lord Jesus in John 14, 3 told his church, I will come again, that has been the hope of his people. When he ascended into heaven in Acts chapter 1, verse 11, the angel said, this same Jesus, not another Jesus, this same Jesus who you've seen go into heaven will so come back likewise. And Hebrews 9, 27 and 28 tells us that just as Christ was given once as a sacrifice for sin, so he will come again, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. The Bible tells us Jesus Christ is going to come back and it is the hope of the true church in every generation. So here tonight, we're not here uh, trying to bring about headline hysteria, but we're neither bored either. We're, we're, we're biblical and we're praising the Lord for what we read in the Bible. We're not yawning, we're yearning for his coming. We're not looking for something to happen, we're looking for someone to come, the Lord himself. And to help us to consider this, I want us to have a look at another prophecy from the book of Isaiah. We've looked at a few prophecies over the last few months, uh, which I just can't help because it's been in my own studies and blessed me so much. But I want us to have a look at another one, uh, which deals, as as W.E. Vine puts it, with a passage that bears reference to the coming millennial reign of Christ. Now, what does that mean, the coming millennial reign of Christ? Well, the Bible tells us that in the future... What's going to happen is there's going to be a series of events leading up to the return of Jesus Christ. There's going to be the rapture of the church when Jesus comes in the heavens for his people. He doesn't come to earth. It's not the second coming. But he comes in the heavens where he said, if I go away, I'll come again to take you to be with me that you may be where I am. John 14 verse 3. Now, where is Jesus now? He's in heaven. So one day in the future, Jesus is coming to take his church to heaven. But what we see at the other end of the Bible, Revelation 19, is that one day Jesus is going to come with his church from heaven to earth. That's the second coming. One's in the air, one's to the the earth. One is at a time of peace, the other is at a time of great war, the battle of Armageddon. And uh, one is coming for his bride, one is coming with his bride. And he is coming for his church. Then after that, there will be a period of seven years, a time of judgment uh, on the earth, when literally all hell will break loose upon earth. God's judgments are going to be poured out from heaven, and man's worst will be seen uh, in his sinful nature uh, as the restrainer, as it's called in the book of 2 Thessalonians, is removed. And then at the end of that time, Jesus Christ will come back as King of Kings and Lord of Lords to reign on the earth and establish his reign for a thousand years, according to Revelation chapter 20. And uh, that's what we mean by the millennial reign of Christ. And that will then lead up to his uh, final day of judgment, uh, as we see in the book of Revelation, the great white throne. So there's a series of things that are going to happen. And what we're looking forward to is the coming of Christ uh, again for his church. And then one day coming back in power to reign on the earth. 
And we're excited because when we look at the passages in scripture that deal with Christ's reign, it's a message of hope. And that's what I love. Isaiah is a prophecy which is full of both judgment and hope. Judgment for man's sin. God doesn't mess around with man's sin. Man will will face God's wrath if he goes away from God. But mercy and blessing when Christ comes back for those who know him. And this passage, as I say, deals with that millennial reign of Christ. The one who is the king prophesied. The saviour who was going to die on the cross, according to Isaiah 53. According to the Christmas passage, Isaiah 9, 6. On him the government shall be on his shoulders and he shall reign as king. And when he comes back, we're going to see he's coming back in a wonderful capacity uh, to do three things. He's coming back as the restorer of creation, verse 17 to 19. He's coming back as the remover of evil in verse 20 and 21. And he's coming back as the rescuer of Israel in verse 22 to 24. So I want us to have a look at this tonight. And we're going to focus not just on uh, the return of Christ, but the Christ of the return. When he comes back, this is what he is going to do. So let's see the first one of these three things then. First of all, he is the restorer of creation. And when he comes back, he's coming back as the restorer of creation. Now, we live in a day and age where mankind has become very focused on the state of the world. In fact, somebody has said this to me in the past. He said, I don't know why you bother preaching about salvation of souls, because what most people out there are worried about is the salvation of the planet. And I think it's probably true. I think it's probably true. Unless the Holy Spirit awakens you, you're not concerned about your soul. Uh, And the people in the world are worried about the planet. But I want to tell you tonight, you don't need to worry about the planet. You do need to worry about your soul. (laughs) You don't need to worry about the planet because the planet is going to be safe in the hands of Jesus Christ. And when he comes back, he is going to restore in three ways, as we see here. He's going to restore that which is destroyed. If you look in verse 17, uh, Isaiah the prophet, who's been speaking about uh, Jerusalem's judgment, comes again classically to another passage of uh, blessing here at the end. And he says in verse 17, Is it not yet a very little while till Lebanon shall be turned into a fruitful field, and the fruitful field be esteemed as a forest. Now, Lebanon, as you know, is the country above the top of Israel, and uh, the Lebanon is an area which in Bible days was rich with trees. Uh, That's one of the things I would love to have seen. I love trees. But it's famous for its cedar trees. You know the cedars of Lebanon? You see at the big stately homes like Dirham. The cedars of Lebanon were the mighty trees uh, of Lebanon. In fact, Solomon used these for the building of the temple in 1 Kings chapter 5, and King Hiram floated them down to the coast of Joppa uh, for uh, the the rebuilding or the building of the first temple in Jerusalem uh, in the days of King Solomon, the son of David. Uh, But what he says is going to happen in the last days is the Bible says is that in the last days there's going to be great judgments on the earth which are going to affect even the trees. And that's something that's quite astounding, isn't it? We tend to think that God's judgments only affect people, but it will land on the whole of the planet. 
For instance, in Revelation chapter 7, we read how uh, the sealing of the 144,000, which is a whole subject on itself, we won't get into that tonight, but it's, uh, it's, it started off in that chapter with the message which says, Do not harm the earth, the sea, or the trees until we have sealed the servants of God on their foreheads. And in Revelation chapter 8, which speaks about the trumpet judgments, uh, which is one of the waves of God's judgments from heaven, it says, The first angel sounded, and hail and fire followed, mingled with blood, and they were thrown to the earth, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all green grass was burned up. Can you imagine what a devastating judgment that is going to be when that happens in the tribulation period? You know, trees give us the oxygen of the planet, uh, trees also help with the air quality so that asthma sufferers and people like that will find it hard to breathe. Uh, you think of the greenery that's needed for animal life, vegetation, uh, and so on. It's going to be a devastating thing. And yet the Bible promises when Jesus Christ returns, he's going to restore what has been destroyed during that time. And Lebanon will be returned to a fruitful field. In fact, he says that's not good enough. He said the fruitful field will be esteemed as a forest. That's how thick, again, it's going to be with vegetation. God is going to bring that restoration back. And, you know, as, as I look at the news of what's happening in the world today, and I see those terrible wildfires up in Canada, and I've had the privilege of going there and seeing the beauty of that place for my own, with my own eyes, I'm very comforted to know this verse in Scripture. Uh, When the Lord comes back, he's going to restore what has been destroyed in the earth. But also, he's going to restore what has been deformed. If you look in verse 18, it says, In that day, and I want you to underline that phrase in your mind, because that's a, a phrase used by the prophets of the great day when Jesus comes back. And he, he, he works to restore all things in the planet, the kingdom age. In that day, the deaf shall hear the words of the book and the eyes of the blind shall see out of obscurity and out of darkness. And here he's talking about the restoration of what has been deformed. Now, I've got to just uh, take you back into an earlier part of this chapter, if you will, back to verse 9 a moment, because in the time of uh, uh, God's judgment being uh, announced to Jerusalem uh, in the 8th century before Christ, He said this, pause and wonder, blind yourselves and be blind. They are drunk but not with wine, they stagger but not with intoxicating drink. For the Lord has poured out on you the spirit of deep sleep and has closed your eyes, namely the prophets, and he has covered your heads, namely the seers. And that was talking about a judgment uh, where God uh, stopped the message of truth going out uh, to the people at a time of judgment in the Old Testament before uh, the Babylonian invasion. And it was likened to blindness. And a lot of people see that and they say, oh, well, this is just talking about spiritual blindness being healed. So when we come here to verse verse 18, it says he's going to open your eyes so you can read the book. That's talking about spiritual blindness. But I want to tell you, I don't believe it is. Although it's in the same chapter, it doesn't mean it is. Because in Matthew's Gospel, in Matthew chapter 11, when the Lord Jesus Christ receives messengers from John the Baptist, who said, are you the Messiah to come? He quotes this verse. And he says, look at all the miracles. The lepers are healed. 
the poor of the gospel preach to them. The blind see, the deaf hear. And he quotes this verse uh, from uh, the prophecy of Isaiah. And it's a, a a revelation that when Christ comes, there's going to be a restoration for the deformed. What a wonderful, wonderful message that is. The deaf shall hear the words of the book. Now, I've often wondered whether or not I think fear being deaf more than being blind. Because they say if you're blind, you can still talk with people. But if you're deaf, there's a sense of isolation from people. Because you, you conversation you're shut off from. Well, they're going to hear the words of the book. Remember, scripture was read out in those days. People didn't own their own Bibles. But they're going to hear the words of the book. Because their ears will be opened again wonderfully when the Lord comes. And the blind shall see out of obscurity. Uh, uh, out of, they'll come out of their obscurity and out of their darkness. Those who have partial vision, those who have total uh, loss of vision, will have full restoration when Christ comes. And this is all to do, I believe, with the resurrection body of the believer uh, when the Lord Jesus comes and resurrects our bodies and makes them new. You see, this is one of the great hopes of the Christian. Romans chapter 8 in the New Testament talks about the redemption of our bodies. Isn't that a wonderful thing? And you're sitting here tonight in church and you're thinking, oh, my arthritis is killing me, or whatever it is. You know, I've got good news. If you're a Christian, there is the redemption of the body to come. And Paul says in Romans 8, who hopes for what he already has? In other words, we don't have it yet, but we will have it in the future when Christ comes. That's why we don't make false promises about healing. We'll pray for the sick, definitely. And I believe God can heal. But I can't make you a promise because we don't have, we don't hope for what we already have. We're hoping for what's to come in the future. And Christ will heal what's deformed. How wonderful. We have not only soul salvation in Christ, but whole salvation. And then thirdly, we see that when Christ comes, he'll be the restorer of the deprived in verse 19. The humble also shall increase their joy in the Lord and the poor among men shall rejoice in the Holy One of Israel. I hate to tell you this, dear friends, but one of the things that's growing in the world and is going to grow in the world in the last days is the gap between the rich and the poor. And we see it in the book of Revelation, we see it in the book of James, with the rich abusing the poor. And uh, it is going to be quite a, a, a stretch as time goes on. In fact, if you go to chapter 32, there's a, there's a very fascinating little prophecy here in verse 6. And uh, it, it's quite a disturbing one. He says, for the foolish person will speak foolishness and his heart will work iniquity to practice ungodliness to utter error against the Lord. So this is what's going to happen. People are going to utter errors against the Lord in their foolishness. To keep the hungry unsatisfied. And he will cause the drink of the thirsty to fail. Isn't that a frightening thing? You know? When you can control people's finances, when you control their, their food intake and so on, you can control people. World control is one of the names of the game. And uh, that is going to be one of, the, one of the frightening things in the days to come. But here's the good news. Here's the good news. When Christ comes, 
The humble shall increase their joy in the Lord and the poor among men shall rejoice in the Holy One of Israel. The Lord will deliver uh, from uh, all these things and we shall not be deprived. We'll be blessed in him. This is a great hope. And the humble there and the poor together show that the two go hand in hand. They're humble because they've been made poor. But the Holy One of Israel is the one who will restore blessing. And uh, this was the hope of Job that we're pointed to in the book of James as well. So, dear friends, have a look at this and see for yourself the restorer of creation is the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a, a great hope for us in this day and age with so much going on. And when we look at the world, we can say, yes, it's bad. But one day when Christ comes, it's going to get better. And this is good news for those who know Christ. Second thing I want you to see here is Christ will be the remover of evil when he comes. And we see that in verse 20 and 21. You know, one of the things that uh, you often have thrown back at you when you uh, are a Christian is the issue of suffering. And people often say, don't they? Well, if there is a God, why doesn't he get rid of all the suffering? Why didn't he get rid of all the suffering in the world? Well, I've got news for you. One day he is going to. One day he is going to get rid of all the suffering in the world. And the moment we can see that suffering has been caused by man's sin in the Garden of Eden and uh, is a result of the fall of Adam. But one day when Jesus comes again, those who've been made new and forgiven by him uh, because they've put their trust in his saving work on the cross, they will enter a world where evil has been removed. And there's two definite groups here that are mentioned for removal. The first is the terrible one. If you look in verse 20, he says, For the terrible one is brought to nothing. The scornful one is consumed. And I believe these two people are the same person, the terrible one and the scornful one. Now, who are we talking about here, the terrible one and the scornful one? Well, we have a little hint in the earlier part of the chapter, back in verse 5, when he was talking about the Assyrian invasions, and uh, he talked about their leaders. He said, moreover, the multitude of your foes shall be like fine dust, and the multitude of the terrible ones like chaff that passes away yes it shall be in an instant suddenly and if you read later on in the prophecy of Isaiah you read the historical account of how God rescued the people of Israel from the hand of Sennacherib king of Assyria and by the way that's upheld by archaeology as well as scripture because you can go to the British Museum and you can see the Taylor Prism, which records the account of Sennacherib's, uh, well, he doesn't say it's a defeat. He walked away from a siege at Jerusalem, which he never did. Uh, but the fact is, he walked away on his own because God destroyed his army. But the terrible ones there were, 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 the, were the Assyrian kings. Well, here we have reference to a terrible one singular and what it's telling us is, it's a, it's a wicked king who is coming. A wicked king who is coming. The terrible one. Now, in the years of um, following Alexander the Great, the world was given the Greek language, and they translated the Hebrew into the Greek. 
for the Greek-speaking Jewish people. Most of the world actually spoke Greek. Most of the Jews spoke Greek, so they needed a Bible in Greek. And they came up with what was called the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures. I've got a copy of that at home. And the phrase that's used here will ring bells for those who study Bible prophecy. Because when it says the terrible one, it literally says the lawless. The lawless. Now, who is the lawless one? Read 2 Thessalonians 2.8 and you will see the lawless one is the Antichrist who is to come. You see, just as certainly as Christ has come, so the devil has his man too. And just as God has his son who he wants us to put our trust in to be saved from our sin on account of his death on the cross, the devil has his man to lead the world astray. And the Bible tells us that one day in the future, such a man is coming. We have Old Testament pictures of him in the, in the character of Cain and Nimrod, in Tobiah, who set up himself in the temple, and Nehemiah threw out at his second coming. That's significant. Adonizedek in Joshua chapter 10, who gathered the nations to war against Israel, and ultimately, I think, King Nebuchadnezzar, who called himself King of Kings, although he wasn't, a title that is divine, and uh, he threw the Jewish boys into the fiery furnace like there will be a holocaust of the Jews in the end. This terrible one who's coming is literally what his name says. He is a terrible one. He is the Antichrist. And uh, anti as in the sense that he is opposed to Christ and also in an alternative to Christ for the world. This is what John says uh, in his letter in 1 John chapter 2, verse 18. Little children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist, capital A, is coming, even now many Antichrists have come, by which we know that it is the last hour. And it's true, there have been many terrible ones, many uh, 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 terrible dictators down the years. And the most recent, I suppose, we think of is someone like Adolf Hitler, who reigned for seven years in, in, the, in the period of the war and did all the things that the Antichrist will do. He even wanted to set himself up as a, a, as a, a messianic ruler of sorts, according to the Daily Telegraph. And I've got uh, uh, references in books at home to his quotes on that. But in the future, the terrible one is coming, the Antichrist, spoken of in 2 Thessalonians 2 and Matthew 24, who will lead the world astray as if he was a final Caesar uh, to try and get people away from God to worship ultimately the devil himself. He's going to make a hostile takeover on this world. And I want to tell you this, dear friends, this terrible one who's going to be a scornful one, he's going to mock Christianity. Uh, He's going to be a mocker, uh, as the Bible says. He is coming. He is coming. You know, sometimes you hear people say, oh, the world's spinning out of control. It's not spinning out of control, it's spinning into control. And uh, all the chaos is, the things that are happening in the world, they're all designed to bring nations to their knees. This has been the plan of dictators ever since the beginning of time. Psalm 2 uh, tells us the nations, the true conspiracy, not the false conspiracies you read on the internet, but the true conspiracy is that the world leaders are uh, setting themselves against the Lord and against his Christ. But God says his son will reign on the holy hill of Zion and will come back. And when he comes back, he will deal with the terrible one. I'm so glad he's going to be brought to nothing. He's going to be consumed. 
That's literally what it says at 2 Thessalonians. It tells he's going to be consumed by the breath of Christ's mouth. You see how the Old Testament leads us into the New Testament so wonderfully. And Christ will triumph over him in the most wonderful ways. But not only is he going to remove the terrible one, he's going to remove the troublesome ones, as I call them in verse 20 and 21. Because the rest of the, the verses there says, And all who watch for iniquity are cut off, who make a man an offender by a word, and lay a snare for him who reproves in the gate, and turn aside the just by empty words. Now what, what is this talking about? People in the last days are going to be people who want to play the blame game. And isn't that actually what we see happening in the news all the time now? A politician says something just the wrong way and every finger's pointed at him. Somebody says something, ah, oh, we always knew this, and it's cancel culture. They're blanked out. And they make a man an offender by a word. You didn't mean it that way, but that's how they took it. And the whole thing is spun around on you. And you're blamed for things, whether you're guilty of them or not. You know, earlier this year, there was a, a terrible shooting. Uh, I think it was in a gay nightclub uh, in, in America. And uh, the death of any one of God's creatures is a sad thing. It really is. Because God doesn't desire the, the, the judgment and the perishing of anyone. He wants people to be saved and to turn to him. Uh, but there was a shooting in a gay nightclub. And you know, focus on the family Christian ministry that uh, uh, has a, a radio ministry and it upholds traditional family values. It had a, a big a, an attack from somebody all over their, the uh, outside of their offices uh, saying, how many more will die because of this teaching? Now, here's the irony. When they actually found out who the killer was, it turned out he was himself a homosexual. But, oh, that's irrelevant. No, it's because of this, what you Christians are saying. And you see how it's turned against everybody with a word. Well, God is going to bring justice against those who are uh, are, uh, uh, offenders uh, laying judgment with their words like that and accuse people. You know, I even wondered about having the doors open tonight preaching this because, you know, people will accuse you of things. But God will stand uh, for us in that day. And the terrible ones, the troublesome ones, all who, are, who watch for iniquity, they will be cut off and they will face God's judgment. Jude talks about this when he talks about uh, people facing judgment for their words. It doesn't take much size to criticize, uh, but it does take a lot of size to stand up against a holy God when he comes in judgment. So when the Lord Jesus comes back, he's going to do that very thing. He's going to be the remover of evil, and suffering will end on the planet. Now that's good news, But that's also bad news. And I'll tell you why. Because who of us in this room can say we have never been the cause of anybody else's suffering at any time? Who of us in this room can ever say we have always been the victim and never the perpetrator? None of us. None of us. We're all guilty. And if God was to come and remove all the evil, he would have to get rid of us. 
he would have to get rid of me because I'm a cause of it too and so are you and that's why God's offer of salvation mercy through his son who's coming again to reign as a king is a wonderful wonderful offer because he's saying before it goes to court I'm giving you a chance to settle outside outside of court and here's the even better deal I'll pay the fine for you what an offer the hymn writer said such an offer full and free is it really meant for me that all my sins on him were laid that all my debts by him were paid yes Jesus said it who has died believe and thou art justified you know we put our trust in the Lord Jesus Christ our sins are washed away and God finds no fault in us not because we're perfect but because he's merciful and he's offering cleansing through his son's death for us so I'm very grateful that the remover of evil is the one who removed my evil from my account that I may stand before him and when he comes it's going to be a good day not a bad day for me is that true for you Is that true for you? If it isn't, put your trust in the Lord Jesus, even tonight. The third thing we see here is that when Christ comes, he is going to be the rescuer of Israel. And this is what verses 22 through to 24 says. And in these verses, uh, the, the focus narrows down onto the nation of Israel themselves. Therefore, thus says the Lord who redeemed Abraham concerning the house of Jacob. Now, you may notice that all the way through this passage, the Lord has been identifying himself as the God of Israel. Uh, Verse 19, at the end there, uh, the poor among men shall rejoice in the Holy One of Israel. At the end of verse 23, and hallow the Holy One of Jacob and fear the God of Israel. And the God of the Bible is the God of the Jews. Not the God of the Palestinians. The God of the Jews. That's what the Bible says. Not what John Eichen says or anybody else. It's what the Bible says. He is the God of Israel. And he has a covenant with Israel through their founding father Abraham. Who he redeemed as it says there in verse 22. And because of that he is going to be faithful to Abraham. And he's going to bring blessing and rescue to Israel when Jesus comes in the last days. And this is what he says concerning the house of Jacob. He's going to rescue them from fear of persecution in verse 22. Jacob shall not now be ashamed, nor shall his face now grow pale. Now what's he talking about here? He's not talking about being ashamed of the things he's done wrong. But what he's talking about, ashamed as in fearful, because he has no defence. And this was the state of Israel in the Old Testament against the Assyrians and the Babylonians when they were coming. And yes, it was because of their sins and the nation had gone away. But it was a frightening situation. But you know what? That's the situation of the Jewish people today. Their faces grow pale and they're fearful. They're fearful. You read the newspapers about the rise of anti-Semitism in our world. And you read why many Jewish people are leaving our country and leaving the other countries of Europe. Because they're fearful. Anti-Semitism is rising. And even if you go back to the land of Israel, as many of them are travelling back to the land, making aliyah, as they say, and settling in the land, there's still still fear of persecution from their neighbouring countries. 
They're surrounded by enemies. They live in a theatre of threat. But when the Lord comes, when the Lord comes, that will all end. They will not now be ashamed or grow pale. They won't go white in the face. It won't be like living with a time bomb strapped to you all the time because you're Jewish. They'll have peace because their Messiah has come. What a wonderful mercy that is going to be to God's covenant people. Also, he's going to rescue them from falling population. Verse 23, he says, But when he sees his children, the work of my hands in his midst, they will hallow my name and hallow the Holy One of Jacob and fear the God of Israel. Uh, I don't know if you know this, but uh, world population is something that's spoken of quite a lot in the last days, passages of scripture. And uh, we read about some of the ups and downs in world population. And uh, in the days of, of the Lord's coming, Jesus said, as it was in the days of Noah, so it'll be in the days of the coming of the Son of Man in Luke seventeen twenty six. Well, what was it like in the days of Noah? Well, apart from it being very corrupt, one of the things we read was that the people populated and filled the earth. There was a population explosion. And hasn't that happened? Eight billion people now on the planet. They're saying now, oh, we can't sustain these sort of numbers on the planet. Yes, we can. God has provided and will provide. But this is what they're saying. But the numbers will go up, but our numbers will also go down. In Revelation chapter 6, verses 7 to 8, we read in one judgment that a quarter of mankind will die. Think of that. So in this room, one every four of us would be dead. That'll bring our numbers down, wouldn't it? And then in Revelation chapter 8, 11, it says that many will die. And then in Revelation 9, 18, it tells us that a third of mankind will die. A third of the remaining three quarters. (laughs) Think how much population is going to go down, never mind go up. And it's going down so low, Jesus said in Matthew 24, 21, unless these days have been shortened, that, that no one would survive. And that's not going to bypass Israel either. In Zechariah 13, verse 8 and 9, we read that two thirds of the Jewish people are going to be killed in another holocaust. That's a terrible loss of numbers when you consider how many they've already suffered uh, losing during the Holocaust. But here's the hope of the Lord's return for the nation of Israel. They're not going to be wiped out. God's covenant promise to Abraham, which would be that he would have a seed, a people, a nation. He said, when he sees his children, the work of my hands in his midst, they will hallow my name. And Isaiah talks a lot about this. And they were, people will even say, well, where did these all come from? That's one of the prophecies later on in, in, in Isaiah. And it's going to be God's work. And it says, they will hallow the Holy One of Jacob and fear the God of Israel. It's a wonderful thing. They're not only going to be multiplied, they're going to be saved. Well, that's a wonderful thing. If you're a parent, you know how wonderful it is to have a child. But you know what is even more better is to have a child who trusts Jesus. And that's what's going to be the case when they come. There's a parallel this in Jeremiah 30 verse 19. I will multiply them and they shall not diminish. I will also glorify them and they shall not be small. Their children also shall be as before and their congregation shall be established before me. And I will punish all who oppress them. 
That's a wonderful thing. You say, John, do you really believe God will do that? Yes, I do. I do. I believe he's done it in the past. He did it in the Exodus when they tried to wipe out the Jewish people in the days of Pharaoh. God made them multiply and they kept increasing and increasing and increasing. And God had that, had that ability to do it then. He has the ability to do it in the future. And the numbers turning to the Lord among the Jewish people are wonderful. I was reading a, a, a book just recently and it said, you know what, in 1967, at the time of the Six-Day War, which was the anniversary of that, was just last week, by the way. Uh, in 1967, at the time of the Six-Day War, there were only 200 Christian Jews, Messianic Jews as we call them, in the land of Israel. And there were only two congregations. That was 1967. Today... There are estimated 30 to 40,000 Christian Jews in the land of Israel and 300 Christian congregations among the Jews. Isn't that wonderful? What God can do. And that's what he'll do in the future when the Lord comes. But he's also going to rescue them from faulty perceptions. Verse 24. Look how this passage ends. He says, These also who erred in spirit will come to understanding and those who complained will learn doctrine. You know, so many people in the world today are being misled by false teaching. Whether it be the false teaching on the internet or on the television or in the churches, let's be honest. And it's causing many people to err and err in spirit as well as in their beliefs. It's a sad thing. I read this testimony from a pastor uh, just recently. And he said this, that he want, uh, a young man called him to talk with him. And he talked with him until the early hours of the morning about what he described as his crisis of faith. And the pastor writes, he says, he told me after listening to lectures at the university he was at on the origin of life, he could no longer believe in the literal interpretation of Genesis in the Bible. When I asked him how this affected his view of life, he responded, well, I must confess that the things taught here in church don't seem as important as they once did. Two years later, that same student telephoned me in the middle of the night to say he was about to commit suicide. Mercifully, he refrained from doing so, and later he came to renewed faith in Christ. I praise God for that story, but it highlights, doesn't it, the danger of false teaching even in the universe, when people deny God's teaching, it, has, it doesn't come without consequences. And you go against the Bible or confuse the teachings of the Bible, you'll do irreparable damage sometimes to people. But here's the wonderful thing about Israel. All the Jewish people have heard all these wrong things uh, and misleading lies against Christianity. You know, it will all be cleared up and they will get clarity. And those who complained will learn doctrine. You know, I've got to tell you, I've prayed that verse so many times. <laughs> when some people have come up to me afterwards, after I've preached uh, something at, at church and they didn't like it, I've said, Lord, you know what it says in Isaiah. <laughs> Those who complained will learn doctrine and uh, they'll come to see what the Bible says. Well, that's, that's, the, that's the rescue God's going to give. And that's the greatest rescue to come to a knowledge of the truth. So what a wonderful thing it's going to be when the Lord Jesus Christ comes again. You know, Winston Churchill was once asked to give the qualifications of a person to succeed in politics. And this is what he said. 
It is the ability to foretell what is going to happen tomorrow, next week, next month, and next year. And to have the ability afterwards to explain why it didn't happen. (laughs) Well, that's something the prophets didn't have to worry about. Because the word of God has a track record, 100% of coming true. And these things we've read about here will come to pass just as surely as Isaiah's prophecy about the virgin birth came to pass. And Isaiah's prophecy about the cross in Isaiah 53 came to pass. And Isaiah's prophecy about the return of Israel to the land came to pass. These words will come to pass too. Just go back now to the very first line of that prophecy we read tonight in verse 17. What does it say? Is it not yet a very little while? What a message of hope to go home on. It's not long, people, before the Lord comes. The world is going to get worse, but it's going to get better when Jesus comes again. Praise his name. Put your trust in him if you've yet to do so. 